Hey guys, it's Sasha here, and you're listening to the twelfth episode of Dear Seekers. This week, we didn't receive any recordings from you for our open mic. I'm super disappointed, guys. Super disappointed. Just kidding. If it's not meant to be, it's not. But just a quick reminder. If you have anything to share, your thoughts, questions, or comments, you can just record with your phone and send an MP3 or WAV file to hey at dearseekers.com. Make sure to share your name and a little bit about who you are in the beginning. Hope to hear from you. Today's guest is Odessa Paloma Parker. Being the fashion editor at the Globe and Mail does sound very fancy. Her long list of fond memories includes doing shots with David Beckham in a bar. How cool is that? Her childhood memories also includes being a weird girl who loved bold prints and colors. Well, you have to understand, this was before Gucci made maximalism cool again. There were many moments the teenage Odessa felt like an outcast. Now she is a busy lady. Besides being the contributing fashion editor for the Globe and occasional DJ, she's also the content lead for Tokyo Smoke and Vanderpop. Odessa hopes to build awareness and education around cannabis, whether it's through fashion or cannabis. Her goal is very simple. She just wants to empower people to not having to feel afraid, ashamed, or even embarrassed to be themselves. Being a living proof of not compromising the norms, her motto is "Let's get weird." Thank you so much for having me in this lovely and dramatic house. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean you're welcome anytime. <laughs> um, maybe we can go all the way from the beginning. Were you born in Toronto? Sure.、Uh, yeah, I was born in Toronto, and I lived in Scarborough for most of the early part of my life.、Um, And it's interesting because growing up, like coming downtown, was like kind of obviously like the cool thing to do. And I'd spend a lot of time on Queen Street, so I always thought like, oh, this would be the coolest place to live. And now I actually do. So it's it's kind of funny that it worked out that way. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so you were raised in Scarborough? Yes. Yeah. I can't get that connection with your style of Scarborough style. <laughs> I mean, you're not the first person who's told me that. Yeah, I grew up in Scarborough. Obviously, pretty like unusual. Um, compared to a lot of my peers in high school、um, and that sort of thing, but you know, I had my like tribe of friends, and we would like come down to Queen Street or Kensington Market and buy vintage and stuff. Sorry, now Henry, Henry, you're gonna do that now. You had the whole photo shoot to do that. <laughs> he's trying to open the cupboard to get his food. Oh, he's hungry. Should we give him some food? <sighs> yeah, maybe we should. Yeah. Sorry, that's okay. Alright, so just disclaimer: the、yeah. background noise is the two cats eating. You'll、okay. <laughs> <laughs> be like, "What is that yeah, chewing sound?" I, I mean, yeah, they'll be done soon. Whether or not they're still hungry remains to be seen. <laughs> That's okay. So we can go back to、sure. your style of like, and then the core relationship with、uh, Scarborough. Yeah, yeah. I mean,、uh, it was obviously like really suburban. I. Obviously, looked very different from a lot of the people in my high school, but I kind of embraced it. And you know, I wouldn't want to have kind of grown up any other way because it was like Scarborough was really nice and it was close to downtown. So I used to do like acting classes at a theater here and took singing lessons at the conservatory. So I was downtown a lot too. So at least I was exposed to it. Um, unlike I'm sure a lot of people who grew up in the suburbs, and it was sort of not something that they did. I went to the opera and the theater all the time with my parents, so I was still checking out the scene down here and checking out where all the cool people lived. Right. I definitely just felt different. Like most of the people in my high school were not as sort of outrageous or flamboyant, obviously. So wearing like a PVC mini skirt or like neon or fluorescent colors or whatever, like it wasn't that unusual, but certainly a very small population of people like myself who look that way.、Mm-hmm. So I actually felt better coming downtown because I was like, oh, everybody here looks super freaky and weird, and that made me feel more like I was with my people. <laughs> right, right, right. I can totally resonate with that. Yeah. 
What did your parents do? My parents are both immigrants. Uh, my dad's Scottish and my mom's Macedonian. And they've both worked in the retail world for their whole lives. And my mom stopped working for a while when she had me. But my dad worked for Dilax, which was the company that owned like Thrifties and Blue Notes and Tip Top Tailor. And then for a while they had like a designer jeans store in like the 90s. So I remember going and like getting to pick out really cool expensive jeans when I was like in junior high and Whoa. it was pretty ridiculous but I think you know just being around my dad talking about clothing and stuff all the time obviously really informed you know the fact that I work in fashion now and my mom has always loved fashion too and has always been interested in it so they both kind of instilled a love of, of style in me from an early age so the seeds were planted there mm-hmm, for sure I'm sure there are binders in my parents' basement of like things that I ripped out from like Allure and Vogue and like Seventeen magazine. And I was like the type of person who, like if I saw a look, um, like for example, the clueless look with the Mary Janes and the socks and the whatever, like I insisted that I had to look like that exact way. Like (laughs) everything had to be like the way it was styled. So again, I think it's pretty obvious why I'm a stylist now because I always <laughs> felt that way. But um, yeah, so everything had to be like exactly kind of like mirroring whatever was cool at the time. Um, and I mean, I was like 11 and 12 when I was doing this. By the time I got to high school, I was sort of like, fuck it, I'm going to wear whatever I want and look crazy. So um, that's when I started wearing a lot of vintage and was really inspired by artists like Beck who kind of bridged like very retro mm-hmm. with very kind of modern and um, unusual color palettes and like silhouettes and stuff. And um, that really like inspired me to kind of experiment more with my style. I was very like matchy matchy as a child. Oh really? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I loved like color coordination stuff. I mean, I, I guess I still do. It's just more challenging because I wear so many prints, but um, I've always loved color. But yeah, it was like I'd have like shorts and then matching like top and like a, you know, a different pattern or something. So your signature style is definitely mix and match mm-hmm. prints and bold colors. So early on, you felt like that was already there? Or was it kind of evolving along the way? Yeah, I mean, I've always been drawn to color and to, to pattern. Oh, <laughs> there, that's your food. A feeder. Oh, oh that's l- not too bad. Lucky them, they're going to get food twice. Yeah, I mean, I always loved color and patterns and um, jewelry and accessories and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was always kind of um, like a lingering thing that it was always in my mind that like I I cared about how I looked and Mm -hmm. I knew that that affected how people acted towards me. So, you know, it kind of. um, I mean, I think that. certainly like dressing the way I do I think people think I'm like super outgoing and very confident which is true but you know on days when I'm maybe not feeling that way that's kind of how I outwardly project those kind of concepts to people and I was like pretty shy growing up even though like I did a lot of drama and um, musical performances I think I felt shy because I felt weird. Like I liked weird stuff and I liked weird clothing according to everyone in my high school and sort of my surroundings. So I think it made me really, I didn't want to like outwardly project that weirdness because I felt, um, I didn't feel like it made me cool or, you know, and obviously that's very stupid. So by the time I got to university, I was like, much more relaxed about it and it's basically my attitude of like let's get weird you know whatever I think is like my brand now like being weird is my brand it's a kind of like a light bulb moment you're like I don't care anymore I just Mm -hmm. gonna be me or were years of like trying to figure out and then maybe trying to be you but also trying to deny that because that didn't seem cool was a process or more like a light bulb moment um I think it was definitely a process of just slowly realizing that 
the people that I really liked gravitated towards me because of my weirdness instead of the people who, you know, made me feel shitty about it and were like, oh, you're weird or, you know what I mean, like would make fun of what I was wearing. And I realized like those weren't my people. And uh, yeah, I gravitated towards people who gravitated towards me. So it, it made me feel a lot better about being this way and feeling kind of like an outsider and and not minding like I totally never minded it I minded that other people minded it you know and uh yeah eventually just kind of reversed so for many years I've always just been like I don't really care if people judge me for looking this way or liking the things that I like I also kind of feel like everybody just has to do their own thing and be like authentic to themselves so Mm -hmm. you know there's no point in suppressing who you are right Yeah, as I shared earlier, I totally resonate with what you just shared because for the longest time, I have been loving this like old lady fashion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I almost feel like, you know, this 90-year-old lady from the 1920s. I've been living in me for the longest time. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to deny that because it almost sounds like very weird. I always find that weird. Yeah. So when you share that, it's really interesting. I mean, I identify a lot with Iris Apfel, who is like, you know, in her late 90s, and that's totally fine with me. Like, I do not identify with Beyonce or Katy Perry or any, like, of these contemporary icons. So embrace that old lady love. (laughs) Embrace it. Oh, my God. Now you're going to university. Yeah. You're like, fuck it, I'm going to embrace my weirdness. Mm -hmm. Now what? Oh my god, that's when I started going through like very experimental phases with fashion. Um, I definitely like wore a lot of like street style in my early 20s, which I'm sure like nobody could even fathom. Um, but it was like the early 2000s. So like Triple Five Soul was really popular and like Vice was like just new and stuff, right? So you were kind of starting to, and this is like obviously pre-internet really, um, <laughs> in any significant way at least. Yeah. So you were getting your information from magazines still. And so like Dazed and Confused and stuff like that were really what you turned towards to find out what was cool. So it was very street style, like I said. So I had that phase. And then it slowly evolved into like a mod phase. So I was wearing a lot of like suitier pieces and like pencil skirts and like A-line dresses and stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I still really love the mod aesthetic. It's just I'm too fucking all over the place, obviously, to like adhere to anything. So like I I totally get that that's a weird concept because of the way I am now to think of me that way. But yeah, I always had like a little scarf and like bought a ton of fit and flare dresses, like vintage dresses and stuff, and like kitten heels and that sort of thing. So that was a look for sure. And then I just slowly started kind of evolving more into like the chaotic hippie vibe that I have now. <laughs> is that what you call your style? I just did. <laughs> for the first time and it won't be the last. No, so That's yeah. so cool. I've yeah. never heard of it before. Chaotic Yeah, yeah, TM. Yeah, it could be. (laughs) There you have it. So you studied book and media study? Uh, No. So I did a double major in English and semiotics at U of T. And then um, when I graduated, I worked for Comrags, the fashion brand, for a year. And then I went back to school for publishing at Centennial. After I went back to college, I worked at a makeup school. Or sorry, I worked at a stylist agency first. And Judy uh, Inc., right? Yeah, Judy Inc. And I was doing their marketing. So again, at that time, was pretty limited. Our website was archaic in terms of like functionality you know and it was like my first foray into fashion so meeting all these stylists and makeup artists and photographers and stuff for the first time was pretty incredible and it was nice because at that time there were quite a few like young up-and-coming stylists and photographers and hair and makeup artists who I've been able to work with for my entire career which is really nice and we've all kind of like risen together from where we started off so that's been very fun and then I worked in a makeup school CMU doing their marketing and then while I was there I just decided you know I really want to do something with this publishing knowledge that I have so um, I started plaid and I eventually got to a point where I felt like I really wanted to try and turn it into a serious business which unfortunately didn't work out because it was the time when the internet became really prevalent in terms of content production and people weren't buying print publications anymore or like it was a vicious cycle. I think we were pretty niche. And also, you know, it was just really hard to be creating this content mm-hmm. constantly and keeping up with the demand for it. I think if we were to do it now, it'd be 
a lot easier and probably would be much more successful. But it was a nice thing to try and have that experience of working with writers and other freelancers. And it was nice because I think a lot of people who contributed to our pages and our website tell me like that was their first opportunity to get into the industry. And it's it's been fulfilling for them so far as a career. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's always nice. And after Plaid, what did you do? So I was purely freelancing, so doing freelance styling and editing and writing. And then I can't remember how many months passed, but uh, then I got a chance to interview for the opportunity at the Globe and Mail for fashion editor. And I got that, and that was four years ago. So, mm-hmm. yeah. What was it like to be the fashion editor for one of oh, the I mean, most important I was drunk magazines. with power. <laughs> no, it was... Um, I mean, it was interesting because it was definitely like a super corporate and huge business to work for coming from two smaller independent businesses that, you know, the teams were small and, um, you know, walking into a scenario where there's like, like 900 colleagues was quite unique. I mean, our team was really small and really strong within the style component. But, you know, it was weird, like never really getting to know some of the other people in like video or digital who you would email with and stuff, but you maybe see like in passing going to the washroom or something. There wasn't a lot of connectivity. But yeah, our team was awesome. And uh, it was great. I mean, we had budget to like travel and do photo shoots and the Globe and Mail being what it is, I got to interview very high profile people because of it, like Anna Sui and Dries Van Noten. And it was nice working for a media outlet that had a good reputation and also like a great readership. And it was nice because, you know, I get letters from people. I mean, I still freelance for them and I still get letters about my column from people saying like, thank you for making me feel inspired or making me feel like even if I'm petite, I can still wear a long skirt or, you know, I don't really ascribe to that kind of like fashion nonsense of like the concept of flattering and that sort of thing. I think it's bullshit. Like wear what you like. Um, And I'm the last person to dictate in that way because I love to experiment with style and I know what works for me and what I gravitate towards. And I think everybody should feel a bit better about experimenting because Mm -hmm. I was doing a bit of personal styling to being plaid in the globe. And I find it really frustrating how many women are very hesitant to really experiment slash express themselves with style because they're worried about what other people think. And now working in the cannabis space, it's like I see that, but it's with weed. Women are worried that they're going to be judged if they're a mom or, you know, just by being a woman. Like Mm -hmm. we grew up feeling like a stigma towards cannabis consumption anyway, but for women it was just so much worse because you were the person who took care of the kids or um, it wasn't ladylike to be stoned, you know, all of that sort of nonsense. So I guess I'm still kind of helping people work through those things and come to the conclusion that, you know what, if this is right for you, mm-hmm. um, go for it. Right. Like don't make other people make you feel like you're making the wrong choice as long as you feel confident in your choice because you have the best information and are considerate about it. Like, why not? Just go for it. Mm-hmm. And talking about the fashion industry is kind of interesting because I remember Stacey London, mm-hmm. she in an interview chatted about how fashion industry nowadays is really based on people's insecurity, right. which I found it very true, yeah. to be honest. The five must-buy shoes, you, you know, like mm-hmm. a, the foundation, if you get, you're going to be better. Yeah. So when you were working at the fashion industry, which you're still doing that now, how do you reconcile of, um, you know, promoting fashion, pushing people out of their comfort zone to mm-hmm. be creative and be weird, at the same time not downgraded their intelligence, not being materialism, not being insecure about, mm-hmm. you know, has to be geared that pair of shoes to be better. Like, how do yeah. you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, I think what I really try to focus on and I've always tried to focus on is like the way that the fashion system works is through trends. So, you you know, I don't know if we'll ever escape a time where trends aren't a thing. What will empower you is to figure out, like, and synthesize that information and make it your own. So, you know, it's very funny to me now the amount of DMs and emails and texts I get after a Gucci show and everyone's like, don't you own this? Isn't this just you? And I'm certainly not saying I've, like, informed the Gucci aesthetic in any way, but... 
it's definitely a look. It's weird and it's very much about like vintage and mishmash of concepts and patterns and prints. And, you know, now I feel I'm like, shit, yeah. I'm like, I look like other people now because (laughs) that's my look. And I've never really felt that way before. I've really felt like I stood, especially during that whole like athleisure moment. I was just like, well, um, that's just not what I'm about. So yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important for people to look at what's happening on the runway, get inspiration from wherever you want to get it from, and then just figure out how that makes sense in in your aesthetic vocabulary, I guess. Like if you were using fashion to express yourself, and I mean, we all are to a certain degree, you know, just don't let it become the thing that defines you or that you're always like working towards perfecting because there's no such thing as perfect Mm -hmm. you know just if you don't usually wear color but you want to just like try it it's also just clothing so it's not the end of the world exactly yeah and I think that's the way you kind of circumvent this idea that like it's prescriptive and you have to I don't want to be prescriptive I just want to show people what's cool and beautiful and unique and interesting and let them make their own decisions and come to their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. And how do you find a balance of pushing yourself? Obviously, I think mm-hmm. you have mastered that, but do you have any, you. <laughs> any tips for someone want to push themselves out there, but also not trying to be someone they're not? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how am I getting this. It's yeah, like, because yeah. sometimes you're experimenting things. You want to be bold. You want to be a little bit different than who you actually are but at some time you don't want to get too far away from who you actually are but you don't know who you actually are so this is getting very philosophical (laughs) (laughs) what is life um i think you have to start with not being worried about what other people will think i think that's like your biggest roadblock and How you do that is just realize, again, like everybody's different and there's no point in trying to replicate or measure yourself against what someone else is doing, like across the board in terms of career, in terms of how you look, how you feel, like it's okay to feel like sad or down sometimes. It's okay to allow yourself to feel those feelings. Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. But uh, yeah, you've got to just kind of get over this notion that like there's perfection and like you're supposed to look a certain way too. Like again, like the notion that women are supposed to like adhere to or conform to any sort of like aesthetic just drives me fucking crazy. (laughs) It's like, why? So yeah, once you've kind of taken that layer away, just start small. You know what I mean? Like if you aren't used to wearing color, like I don't know, get a colorful umbrella Something that you don't have to, like, define yourself with as much because it's only for occasional use. And it's practical, so you need it. So once you start attaching yourself to that, or maybe it's like a, you know, an unusual bathing suit or something. Like, just dip it. Ooh, metaphor. And then you dip your toe. (laughs) I'm a writer, so. Yeah, but you just kind of, like, dip your toe and ease yourself into this new territory. And then from there, like, hopefully it starts to let you tease out and explore these things that maybe are outside of your comfort zone. The worst thing to do is be me in streetwear circa 2001, not being your authentic self because now I look back at those pictures and I'm just like, oh man, like, is that me? It's so strange. And And now looking back, I can tell, but at that time... How would you be able to identify that I think, when you're living in the moment? You know what? I will say that I've always admired, like, the chameleon and not like I'm comparing myself to, like, a Lady Gaga or something. But, you know, I mean, I grew up loving David Bowie and that kind of style transition that he was able to go through so flawlessly. Um, and again, I'm not comparing myself to it, but I certainly felt like part of being a person who is interested in design and art and music and style was that sort of fluidity and that kind of um, enjoyment of experimentation. So, I mean, I don't like regret it, but it certainly was an experiment. But I think it's kind of funny because I'm like, you know, looking back, that makes sense. I might not always look this way. I have been pondering like switching it up. Oh, hi, Gus. 
Gus is Gus in the is house. Right what do you have to say about it? He's very cute. Thank you. He loves gray. Oh my goodness. Gray is his favorite look. Yeah. He's in the middle of us. Aww. He's usually not this forward. Really? Yeah, he very likes you. Aww. Odessa's style has definitely evolved over the years, but mixing vintage finds with contemporary designer pieces has always been the secret sauce to her unique style. So it doesn't really come with a big surprise when I discovered she was the founder of a vintage crawl. And it sounded like you always loved vintage. I mean, I think it it came from growing up with parents who were teenagers in the seventies and. Looking at old photos of them and like the music that they liked back then is all like my favorite music now. And I mean, I do think again, it's kind of part of the cycle of fashion, certainly and style. Is you know in the seventies, like the looks in the forties was really popular, and then in the nineties, you kind of had the seventies coming back. So I think that kind of like turning over of decades and what was popular back then is certainly. A thing that happens now in fashion, and the why and the rationale behind that nostalgia is always really interesting too. But yeah, I mean, I think again, like everybody else I knew in high school was like going to the mall, and not that there's anything wrong with that. And like, I loved me some Le Chateau in the '90s so so much, but I didn't feel like I was like other people. So I was like, well, why am I going to dress like other people? So going to Kensington Market and going to the Black Market on Queen Street and stuff was. Appealing to me because I felt like it let me really express myself and sort of be like a visual manifestation of like everything going on in my brain. Which <laughs> <laughs> draw your own conclusions, people. <laughs> If you're listening to this episode in real time, Vintage Crawl is actually happening today, June twenty first. I can promise you, I totally didn't anticipate how perfect the timing would be for this episode. If you don't know about Vintage Crawl, here's a short blur for you. It's a citywide event happens twice a year in Toronto, that participate by city's best vintage shops, including some gems recommended by dear seekers like Mama Loves You, Chosen Vintage. For this event, shops on the Crawl stay open late. And host special sales and attractions to customers. So if you are free today, make sure to pay a visit to some of your favorite vintage shops in the city. Why did you want to start a vintage crawl? I became friends with a lot of the business owners,、um, and I still am. And I just felt like it was really important to. Be active in the community, and you know I'm I'm not like a Girl Scout leader or anything like that. But this is my community. These are the people that I think work super hard, and I appreciate the vintage business owner because I've derived so much joy from buying vintage and wearing it and styling with it. So it was really like a gesture of appreciation, really, for what these people do and what they bring to everyone's life. And then for the consumer side, you know, I'd be lying if I said that is not on my mind the level of like extreme consumption and waste involved in the fashion industry. And this is my small part of it to say, you know. You can get great stuff that has lasted for thirty or forty years. It's probably going to last a long time. Why buy something new? But this is the tension, right? Because I love creative people. I love designers, contemporary designers, and I want to support their business. So if I can just do one thing to like make people sort of switch up their consumption habits a little bit. Um, but then also the great thing about vintage is like it's yours. Like you're not going to see other people. Wearing it, and that really again speaks to the level of <laughs> uniqueness that I've achieved in in my own dressing. And I think it's great if people can kind of like get that same sort of like, ooh, this is this is me. This is totally unique to my wardrobe. I think that's quite exciting.、Mm-hmm. And did you see the success of Vintage Crawl? Yeah, so we're in the fifth year. I mean, I'm only like very tangentially related to it now. But now it's、uh, being passed on to James. It's been, it's yes, it's been bestowed to my husband, um, and the kind people at Common Sort to organize. I mean, who knows in the future? Like, I might 
be more actively involved in it or we could like do something different with it. But it has been quite successful and, you know, it keeps growing. It, it's something that people really enjoy doing. And it's weird because sometimes I meet like total strangers and they're like, oh, I love a vintage crawl. I go and I'm like, wow, like people who aren't my friends do this. <laughs> it's so nice. Like this is an actual thing. You know what I mean? It's like one thing to kind of be in the, the vacuum of like doing something and then all your friends know about it. But when you meet a stranger, it's like the same thing with my column when I'm it's like, like a wow. Yeah, it's like, whoa. Like a person I don't know emailed me. So what compel you to take the jobs at Tokyo Smoke? So, you know, I've been a longtime cannabis user. And it's something that I've always enjoyed doing and made me feel good. And then I got a prescription to help manage my anxiety. And... It's just really interesting because the way I kind of met Alan, the CEO, was not by fluke, but really a friend had suggested just going to the coffee shop because she was like, oh, it's got like vintage Hermes in it, but it's also got like bongs. And I was like, what? I'll be right there. So it was great. And I got to talking to Alan and learning more about the business and the industry. And around the same time, another friend of mine had shown me his Pax vaporizer. And I was just like, what is going on? Because I was very much a person who like, you know, it was like joints. Like that's what, and maybe somebody had a pipe. This was like next level, like designy, stylish things. Mm -hmm. And I was working at the Globe. I wrote the story, you know, and was really fascinated by what was happening in the industry. And eventually Alan said, hey, you know, we're ready to to start ramping up our content. And I was like, great. And luckily, the Globe was going through sort of a transition with the section. And Globe style kind of was amalgamated with a few other sections to become pursuits. And I was just like, hey, like, this is a perfect opportunity to still, you know, continue to contribute to pursuit, but also to try something new and something different. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it was like a perfect timing. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, <laughs> it worked out <laughs> for sure. This is the new world that we live in where people have the opportunity to, you know, buy cannabis accessories that fit into their lifestyle. It's it's not just things that all looked one way like they had for so many years. And also it's really a testament to people feeling comfortable about it because, you know, now you have things that help you consume very discreetly. Like you don't even have to smoke or vaporize. Like you can use a tincture or topical. Um, and what's really important is that it's helping people. It's helping people to relax, to feel better, to feel more creative or more focused. And um, it's really exciting for me to be a part of something that's literally just happening, mm-hmm. you know? There's no established rule, like, well, <laughs> there are rules, certainly, but <laughs> in terms of aesthetic and content, there's just such profound need for research around mm-hmm. cannabis and how it can potentially help people that couldn't happen before because it wasn't legal, so people couldn't right. get anything to do a study on. And um, so it's a lot of anecdotal evidence. There's a personal story. It helped them with a health issue. It helped a loved one or they couldn't get it. And it was, they wish they had had that access to it. And, um, you know, again, like in the same way that I've always felt about the fashion part of my life is I just want people to feel good and and feel comfortable. Comfortable, yeah. And um, not ashamed or embarrassed or afraid of something. And in this case, something that might really improve their life. Mm-hmm. And, As a cannabis uh, user, did mm-hmm. you ever feel like there was a stigma attached to it? Yeah, I mean, certainly defining myself in the way I do. I think most people just assume that I do. It was it was weird for me when I started working in the industry and some people were like, I never would have thought. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, are you looking at me right now? And do you know what kind of music I listen to? I'm just kidding. But yeah, no, certainly it's, uh, it's not something that people make you feel good about historically. Like you were like the burnout or you know, the stoner, the slacker. And it was so infuriating to me because I was like, I was like student of the month in my high school. And 
am a successful person. And luckily, it worked out for me in that I didn't fall into this like stereotype. But yeah, I mean, there is a stereotype that persists. And I think that people um, moving away from that is just going to be so helpful because Mm -hmm. it's not true in a lot of cases. You have a lot of very functional adults who are cannabis consumers, you know, and again, it's also about choices. Like if you don't want to do it, that's none of my business. Just like it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be any of your business if I want to do it, if I've read and understood the information and Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm doing it for the purpose of making my life better, you should have that choice. Yeah, and then you did mention there's a lot of like education component mm-hmm. has to be attached to what you do. I don't know, and probably need to fact check this, but apparently cannabis is actually in the states is a name as the number one like dangerous drug or something, right beside like coke and all that. Right. Yeah. So the way most governments classify drugs is well, yeah. So they classify them into sort of like buckets depending on dangerousness. So cannabis in the federally in the United States is in the same category as you know just some really really powerful street drugs and then also probably some very powerful prescription drugs, and it's at a level above other drugs that it's just very surprising how it's been presented to people and just again this like idea that you know you're ruining your life if you're using it has been around for so 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 long what's the history behind it please educate me right okay (laughs) why Um, would that be happening the history about the stigma the stigma and right. also why was it classified mm-hmm. as the, the drugs beside those like dangerous ones? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's a separate podcast. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, so this is the thing. If you look at alcohol prohibition, it was done because people wanted to control people. They wanted to make it seem like, you know, for example, this notion of like temperance during prohibition. And this is the way you're supposed to act to be a respectable person. Um, And it was, you know, based on many things, just trying to like control people in that way and I think with cannabis it was the same thing if you look at the stigma and even the the word marijuana is like a word that was basically just used to make cannabis seem Mexican because there were a lot of Mexican immigrants in the U.S. at the early part of the 20th century and they did not like that like politicians did not like that Americans did not like that And the way for the politicians to, like, rile everybody up was to be like, and now there's this drug that's going to make you murder a bunch of people, you know, reefer madness, right? And it's marijuana. And you're like, whoa, that sounds Mexican. That's bad. Mexicans are bad. Pot is bad. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Debauchery, violence, murder. ultimate end of the marijuana addict. Hopeless insanity. See this important film now before it is too late. Suddenly everybody's like just formed this opinion, you know, and again, it's just like government administration, like villainizing it and making it seem like you're a degenerate, which still happens currently in the United Mm. States. And yeah, you if you convince enough people that something's bad and wrong, like it's actually amazing the amount of people who have never tried cannabis, have never known people who've tried cannabis and are trying to make you change your mind to think it's a bad, bad, life-ruining thing. And a lot of people that I've spoken to in different capacities, like I interviewed a woman who is doing a lot about educating people about cannabis and pregnancy, despite there not being a lot of research behind it, again, because it's bad and you should just tell people not to do it in the first place. Why bother trying to like educate them about, you know, what it does to you or what it could do to you or what it could... um, It takes so much work and a whole village to turn that around. Yeah, exactly. And we're definitely obviously in a much further along place and I'm going to say more enlightened place. And there's a lot of things behind it. It's freedom of choice. Like it's adults making adult choices um, that are right for them. And you want to do it responsibly, certainly. So 
finding this information, doing the research, telling stories of other people is paramount. If you just make people live in the dark for so long, which has been Mm -hmm. the case, then of course they're going to agree with you because they don't know any better. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm certainly not saying it's right for everybody and there are certainly risks for young people. So, you know, I never want to say like things without backing, I think there hasn't been an opportunity for people to really even understand Mm -hmm. anything about it because it's been so villainized for, you know, 100 years almost, Mm -hmm. you know, so when you have that kind of history behind you, it's really easy to just make it seem like you can go full steam ahead. But the ship has stopped. (laughs) Um, You know, people are getting information and learning things and finding out for themselves Mm -hmm. about it. And uh, it's it's a pretty significant time in history, I'm going to say. And Mm -hmm. we're going to learn a lot in the next... 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and then there's going to be a generation of people eventually who don't know what it's like to think that people who smoke weed are bad people, you know, and that's... alcohol. Yeah. Oh, my God. And this is the thing is like... So what's interesting is my kind of first introduction to Tokyo Smoke was this concept of like, okay, so you have a person who really enjoys cocktails or wine or whiskey or cigars, and you have bar carts and magazines that cater to you and all these products and accessories for you and it's like why would it be any different if you like to smoke pot Mm -hmm. you know and and then even more so but it's like but alcohol is not great for you you know what I mean there's a downside that weirdly enough like there's just such a normalization of alcohol consumption in this day and age like t-shirts like you can I remember being in New York and walking down the street and I saw like 10 people who had some sort of like alcohol related apparel on them you know and i'm the same way like i love my red wine (laughs) and uh i have like a tote bag that has like a red wine kind of stain on it and it says dinner oh my god i need that can you imagine people being totally fine with everybody like smoking a joint like no why it's the why yes Starting with the whys is always a good jumping point. I would love to explore the reasons why, for example, cigars are usually associated with a rich gentleman driving a fancy car. Wine is often branded with sophistication and fun. But cannabis? Not so much. And then you think about cannabis, it's like very ghetto, like a, you know, spelly alley with this like it's just like very very bad stigma attached to it yeah and again it comes down to racism in a lot of ways like even describing it as ghetto it's like that's the thing like that's Mm -hmm. what people want you to think they want to racialize it they want to make it seem like you are a degenerate lesser than person because Mm -hmm. you do it So, bring her knowledge and experience from her background in fashion, styling, and content creation. Odessa is hoping to class up cannabis and change the stigma around it, or simply just open a new conversation. The reasons behind it are so complex, but also obvious at the same time. It's really horrible, and you really want to get to a place where everybody feels chill about it because a lot of people's lives have been ruined because of the stigma and because it's been racialized and because it's been something that's had like just the most extreme negative connotations and it shouldn't. Cool. Um, I just have some rapid fire questions. Sure, yeah. Okay, are you ready? I am. Are you ready? Oh, he was snoring, so cute. You're so cute. Robots or aliens took over the world. Okay. And then after the brainwash process, none of your memories exist anymore. I can only have three? Three memories left. Wait, wait. Okay. They're going to be, like, extended then. So going to uh, the Desert Days Music Festival last year, um, and so being in the desert for a couple of days and seeing 
many of my favorite bands um, with two of my favorite people and having like some very unusual things happen to me while I was there. That was like a great experience. Going to Portugal with my husband last year um, because neither of us had been, which is kind of nice because I do a lot of traveling without him, unfortunately, for work. Um, not that it's unfortunate for the traveling part of it for me, but um, I get to experience a lot of things that he doesn't. Um, so it was nice that we got to like do something together and be – and it's also amazing there. And we had like such – fun kind of diversity in terms of our trip um so that was really awesome and uh, james what should i say why no give me a suggestion <laughs> it's hard part of me wants to say doing shots with david beckham but then i you feel- did yeah oh my god and you hesitated about that memory? I know, but then I haven't said anything about my parents. That's kind of rude. I mean, <laughs> I'm not my, sure. I'm my sure mom would understand. <laughs> my mom would get it. She'd be like, mm-hmm. Um, you did. I How did. many shots did you Just do? one. Uh, oh, my goodness. No, maybe that's not true. <laughs> maybe you only remembered one. Yeah. Oh, I de- yeah. That's, that's a pretty funny story. Oh, I don't know, but I have so many weird, funny stories about my life. <laughs> James, come on. What do you think? If you had to pick a memory for me, what would you say? Come you on. You ask for help. I need to, though. This is, guys, you know you've made it in life when you can't pick a favorite memory, okay? <laughs> Let me just say that to you. Oh, shit. And now I haven't been, like, our wedding. That would not be what you picked. Get off it. <laughs> um. Okay. It would be doing a photo shoot at Blenheim Palace for the globe and just using all these like amazing designs from British designers. And we had this like outfit from Sibling that had this huge orange knit skirt and like a big bow um, and shooting it like a palace in the English oh countryside. Goodness. And it was, I was getting paid to do it. And the photographer we used was, again, somebody who I started working with when I was doing plaid. And so it was so nice to be able to share that experience with them. And there you go. Sorry, Ooh, James. That takes very short time. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, uh, like I said, life could be way worse, I guess. Okay, now it's the same scenario. Okay. But Hopefully not, this is easier. But three truths. Being authentic is the best policy for yourself. Um, so being true to yourself is the most important thing you can do. Uh, there's nothing better than just like listening to your favorite kind of music. And that can get you through anything, I'm pretty sure. And King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard is the best band of all time. Yeah? Why not? <laughs> trying to be have a little bit more brevity there i don't know i'm a very fluid person i (laughs) I can be convinced of things very easily so truth i believe in telling the truth but also you know i I, have the humor yeah exactly that's gonna be tough for you oh god if you were a color what would that be oh some form of pink oh that was easy yeah Pink is my favorite color. Oh, pink in all its manifestations from like very like neon to light pink to, yeah, pink. Pink is, I know, surprising, yeah. right? Yeah, that was easy. I love all colors, but pink is my, you know, sort of my like. Um, Core. Yeah, exactly. And again, it's like the Anna Wintour thing. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't deny who I am. <laughs> it's pink. I don't care if it's, you're rolling your eyes. I love it. If you could choose to be born in one city in the whole world. Any city. Oh, London, for sure. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Which city is overrated? Uh, New York, kind of now? I don't know. But I don't know. Do people really care about New York? Ooh. Whoa. <laughs> no, no, but you know what I mean? Like, you know how New York is like, people in Toronto were so preoccupied for a while about being like New York and... It's, and not just Toronto, like, yeah, that's where everything is measured, and I feel like it's just become so hyped up. And, the Big Apple. 
Yeah, exactly. And like everything that comes along with it. And now, I don't know, I still very much enjoy being there, but I certainly don't think it's where every exciting thing on earth is happening. And I feel like people have kind of let, let that concept persist a touch longer than they should have. Flip side of that, which city is underrated? Uh, I guess I would say Lisbon, even though I've only been there once. Um, it's pretty cool. Like their food scene is really great and um, it's really beautiful and they have a lot of kind of interesting things going on. Like I just saw on Stefan Sagmeister's Instagram that he was at a – a museum show a museum exhibition about flowers and i was like damn i want to go to a museum exhibition about flowers yeah that would be cool right i know so you can start up i mean yeah exactly (laughs) going back to the gallerist slash what did i say artisanal hot dog maker why not i'm gonna be on to my third career of hyphenates yeah (laughs) just what you need right do you More. ever okay that's an added on question sorry sure do you ever worry that your best work is now behind you oh no no mm-hmm. no because if you start to think that way you're toast <laughs> uh how do you keep your horizon then keep expanding i'm just a very curious person i like talking to people obviously um, I'm very indecisive, oh obviously, so I think that keeps things fresh because I'm always like, I don't know, what about this? Um, and I think there's like a real liberation in, in being untethered. And the more I travel, the more I need to travel. And that keeps me going and keeps me stimulated. But yeah, but really just being curious and not feeling like anything is permanent almost, like Again, like, I might not always dress this way, and I'm totally fine with that. I don't need to be the Anna Wintour with the signature bob or the this person with the signature. Um, Sunglasses. So, yeah, I don't need that. I, I, I think it's really exciting. Like, the world is so dynamic and diverse, so you should allow yourself as, like, an entity to be that same way. Deep thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good to end on that yeah or you could be a cat who does the same thing every day (laughs) and i'd also be totally fine with that because they seem to lead a pretty chill life i know right well it depends on who's the owner though thank you yeah i mean we definitely take a lot of naps together don't we i can't believe he's lying here i mean he's really grown he used to be much more afraid of people but he's he's okay now okay bye (laughs) bye Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to head to iTunes to give us a review and five star. <laughs> Thanks in advance. And connect with Dear Seekers on Instagram and Spotify. Each seeker has also shared a playlist on Spotify with you. If you have any questions, thoughts, or comment, record something with your phone and send it to heyatdearseekers.com for our open mic. You never know, your story or comments might just resonate with someone else's out there. So see you in two weeks. Until then, happy seeking.